Welcome to Highway Diary. I'm your host, Eric Hollerbach. This is episode 354 with my CWW homie from UNO, Lauren Walter. How are you? Great. How are you doing? It's been what, like six years? <laughs> Something like that. Did you graduate in 2016? I did. How about okay. you? I graduated 2017. So yeah. I think you, you got there a little earlier than me. I'm a late bloomer, you know? Um, so now that we, you know, it's also crazy because I visited UNO October, 2021. I had a bunch of comedy shows in New Orleans and I just, you know, I wanted to swim in the pool again and see, you know, just visit the campus. And I'm sorry to say it was kind of a ghost town. It was kind of, uh, you know, and when I used to swim, it was like hard to even like to get a lane in like the Olympic sized swimming pool. And it was like completely empty. I was the only one there. Um, when I went October, 2021 from the pandemic and all this BS also around the area, uh, there was like maybe 30% of the roofs were smashed from the latest hurricane that came through. It's always in a state of rebuilding. Um, so looking back now, like after that trip, it got me really nostalgic. Like, man, we had, I, you know, I think we had a great time in college, um, and, you know, it was, uh, you know, some of the workshops were a little combative when we were writing and trying to be like, no, this is my voice, you know, you understand my voice, other grad students. But uh, other than that, I mean, what a pleasure it was to have full in-person classes, you know. So can you describe a little bit what I'm talking about? Uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, UNO University of New Orleans has a uh, generally three-year MFA program, Master of Fine Arts for Creative Writing, where you get to pick a specialization, um, poetry, creative nonfiction, fiction, screenwriting, or playwriting. And yeah, it, uh, from my understanding of what some of the other programs are like, some other MFAs tend to lean more into writing or more into literature. And I think UNO is a pretty 50-50-ish split um, between doing a lot of writing and doing a lot of reading work. Um, and, you know, it encourages doing a lot of workshops in your genre as well as outside of your genre. Um, so you get to see other students work. But obviously, you know, for us, the two of us, at least all of it was in person. They do have a low residency program, which is pretty normal as well. Um, but for those of us who went in person, you know, you're taking all of these classes in person and seeing a lot of the same people over and over again, because it's, you know, a somewhat small, more intimate program, um, especially when you break it down by genre and by year, uh, you really get to know your uh, MFA cohort. Yeah, and, um, you know, I live in Austin, Texas now, and everywhere I go, they're like, oh, sorry, we're having staffing issues because of X, Y, and Z, like, like you go to the pizza place, you go to like, I'm even trying to do shows. Uh, I am doing shows in New Jersey in September, uh, comedy shows at the Comedy Dojo in Morris Plains. And like, I'm trying to get on the website and I was hearing like, oh, we're short staff, we're this and that. And uh, this pandemic scenario, um, I don't know what agenda they're operating under. This is my conspiracy tinfoil hat brain, just real quick. But the collateral damage of the lockdown is a system of momentum that has been destroyed. So like, you know, kids go from first grade, second grade, third grade. It's not just the kids getting shuffled through the school system. It's the teachers training how to teach those classes. And when you put a wrench in the gear for two years, 
you can't just t- flip a switch and go, oh, we're on again because the staff may have moved on or like, what are they going to do without two years of income? So uh, looking back, it's just like such a privilege that we like I went to undergrad, middle school, high school, grad school in person. And, um, you know, like there's a culture that gets developed in person as well, which isn't to say that that can't happen virtually, but I think it requires a much more conscious effort. And especially earlier on in the pandemic, you know, no one knew how long it was going to last or how critical something like that might be. People were scrambling just to get things done. And so I think that that probably fell on the back burner for a lot of programs. Yeah. And I just wonder about the socialization issues. You know, I ran into some uh, kids, you know, at the grocery store and I was like, oh, you have your prom. And they were like, no, we have we didn't have our prom. We like missed all that. And I don't want to name names, but some of the people from high school, uh, they peaked that day, you know. And so you have all these people that don't even get that in their life. I just feel bad for everybody. And I just I don't know. I'm in a not an optimistic headspace about what's this whole thing after visiting you and you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were uh, poetry, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what's your best memory from your poetry MFA training? Oh gosh, I mean, it's hard to distill it down to like a particular memory. There are more general, like I had a lot of really positive experiences. Like it sounds like you did as well. Um, I think uh, generally just hearing positive feedback from other writers who are on the same level as me, as well as maybe some people in the older years, people who said that, you know, something in my poem resonated with them and they really hope I stick with it was really valuable to me as like, a new emerging writer who's still trying to figure out their voice and, you know, how all of this works. Um, I think uh, getting to interact with all the professors was really invaluable for me as well, especially again, such a small campus. I felt like I got to know the faculty really well. I also worked in the English department office as an office assistant before TAing. So I had a lot of opportunities to interact with the professors, which was really nice. Um, but if I had to pick one particular moment, I did get a distinction on my comps, which was a great uh, memory, but not distinction on the thesis overall. And that was probably the hardest memory. So uh, the comp exam, like your final year, you have to like do a, what was that comp exam? Cause I, I have a window into that. Cause I took a class with John Gary mm-hmm. and first of all, having done, I just came back from Houston and I did four shows in Houston at the secret group. And John Gary is shockingly hilarious. Like he matches up with like comics that are like banging it out. He's so funny. He's got a very funny, a PhD in poetry from Princeton university. I mean, what the hell? Also Uh, hilarious. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, what the hell? And then um, I went to him, there was this uh, comedy club drama situation. I literally sought him out in office hours and was like, listen, I know this is not your field. And he gave me the best advice. So I forever am indebted to John Gary. He's great. But uh, I remember his freaking final and midterm were so hard. We had a book, you know, we had to read like 300 poems throughout the whole semester. And he gave me like four lines of a poem and it, you had to say author title. Mm. That was it. Author title. And I made a cheat sheet from, cause like some of the poems were on this book. Some of the poems are on this book. So I, I took all the poems that we had, all 400 poems, and I put them in a PDF by hand 
And then I printed it at the library. And every day I went to the gym and I read it in the sauna to like steam it into my brain. Um, and I got an A in that class. That was the hardest class I've ever taken in my whole life. But uh, is that what it was? Was that what was on the comp? Oh gosh, now I have to, I brought up that memory and now I have to really sit and try to remember. Um, I think there were like two or three parts. Um, I remember, you know, they give you the list in advance where there's a huge list of poems that could be on there. Obviously only a small number will be, but you try to familiarize yourself with them. And I can't remember if we had any, like a similar long list of questions or maybe just some sample questions to get us thinking. Uh, but I know that I prepared there was some Shakespeare sonnet that I felt really comfortable with. I think I prepped a couple of those. Um, and I think I want to say that it was likely that we were going to get something that was older, maybe like older British literature, as well as something contemporary. So being able to keep that in mind, but it was just a lot of writing. Like, I, I think we had to write um, maybe a couple analyses about um, some of the poems presented through maybe a particular lens or responding to a particular question. If that yeah. makes sense. <laughs> it, no, it, it and uh, I explained my uh, workload to one of the comic friends and they were like, that is insane. And uh, it was really hard. And so other people were asking me about specific uh, classmates who dropped out and they're like, why did that person drop out? It's like, it's fucking hard. And they're like, no, no, no. But why did that person drop out? I heard it was like to do with the patriarchy or whatever. I was like, what? No, it's fucking hard, man. Like I had screenwriting class. Huh? I was going to say, especially at UNO, so much of the students there are also like working at least one other job. You know, it's people who really want to be there. But at the same time, you know, a lot of people are also working while being in school. And so you're going and working during the day and then taking all of your classes at night. And it is a lot. Yeah, and uh, God forbid, like I, I got cheated on when, I, you know, I don't wanna get into it, but uh, there, and it's like, okay, I got cheated on, I'm like crying, I gotta pay my rent and I'm showing up to work, you know, you know, to school, uh, you know. I probably, I got really fat when I lived there. Anyway, I don't wanna talk about uh, heartbreak and ice cream eating in the bath. I don't wanna talk about that. Um, what was your, uh, so yeah, my best memory I think was John Kerry. That, the class was so hard, but, uh, just I was so impressed by him and I wanted to do uh, right by him. And also, uh, I just love screenwriting. I really am activated. I felt very activated that time. Like I was doing like four shows uh, a night. I was the only one doing this and working and going to class. And so, like, you know, I feel like uh, some of the girlfriends I had, they they went a different direction because I was like, look, I told one girl, I was like, you're fourth on my list. Like it's make rent, it's comedy, it's UNO, it's you, you're four. And she's like, well, there's like three other girls. I'm like, no, 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 there's no, like, I don't have time for shit, man. Like, anyway. And like you said, then like eating right and exercising and all of that <sighs> way down the list. <laughs> I showed up, I swear to God, this is embarrassing. I showed up 164 pounds. I left 212. You know? well, I also have an embarrassing health story. When I finally got out of the MFA and I was like, okay, now I'm going to focus on myself and my health. Uh, I started looking for a job. And so I was like, okay, to prepare for doing like a nine to five office job, I'll sit in my home office from nine to five, looking for a job and prepping my resume and all of that. And I realized I couldn't do it because my core muscles were so weak because the whole time I was in grad school, reading makes me kind of sleepy and you do a lot of reading. So I would do all my homework in bed and I wasn't sitting up long enough during the day. So I had to go to physical therapy 
to work on my core strength again because I just like did not take care of myself at all. But yeah, it was yeah. overall a great experience. It's like an astronaut who is on the moon. Then they have to like get ready for Earth's gravity again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. All right. So what was your worst memory from UNO? Like I said, I was really riding high on getting the distinction on the comps and then I didn't on my thesis, which honestly was the right call. I mean, some people enter that program and they've already been writing for years and years and they've kind of developed their voice and their style. I was not there. You know, I didn't really start writing, doing, you know, creative writing seriously at all until college. Um, And I went straight from undergrad into the MFA. So it was a really valuable experience for me uh, in that sense. But my thesis, I mean, I don't know how much of that I'm going to end up using. It was very, it was more of a learning process and less of, you know, here's a finished product that I am actually going to turn into a book. Um, another point that comes to mind, like you said, kind of bittersweet. It was a great memory and a hard memory. I remember, this is so funny, it's really painting a particular picture of me, but I got a B on this paper in a class that basically had five grades. It was like a midterm exam, a final exam, a midterm paper, a final paper. And I got a B on that first paper. And I was like, oh no, my 4.0, I'm not going to make it. And I was crying. And then one of my friends uh, actually doubled back into the classroom that I was alone in crying and like spotted me. And it was so embarrassing, but it was also nice because, you know, she was super supportive. And ultimately I did get an A in that class. It was um, African diaspora literature with Dr. Oshandari. That was the hardest class I ever took, but it was really rewarding. I learned so much and he's, you know, like a world-class famous poet. So the I, I'm glad that I pushed myself to take that opportunity to take his class. And really I met that guy. I know who you're talking he's, about. I didn't take his class, but I met him, uh, I think at a UNO function, but yeah, I know that guy. Um, so my worst memory from UNO, I have a couple. I don't want to, you know, some of this is because I have a, a Jersey personality, a white I trash. Love to hear. I'm excited. Um, I don't want to talk no shit on no poetry students, but look, <laughs> this, I have this here. This is called the Hollywood standard. Okay. Screenwriting is technical writing. Okay. Technical writing. And what screenwriting format is, what do you see? What do you hear? That's it. I don't want to name names. A lot of poetry MFAs, ew, came into screenwriting and they were like, uh, it, it would be like interior, you know, basement, dirty basement, you know, night. Uh, Sarah was thinking about how, you know, her home back from World War II and her mom, she was thinking, I would go, thinking, what's on the screen? Her going like this, hmm, hmm. How about voiceover? Sarah, I miss my mommy, blah, 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 you know? And so I said like, get this book, get it. Because otherwise all of my notes are only gonna be formatting. We can't even get to writing a movie until you learn that it's not, an, you know, poetry. Right, because in, in the real world, if you try to submit something that doesn't adhere to that format, it's just not even gonna get looked at. It's a non-starter. That's my point. That's my point. It's like, you can't send this to an agent and be like, hey, can you get my movie going? When it's not, it makes no sense. It's like it's like a blueprint where you made up algebra, you know. And it's like, hey, build this building. It's like this is this is incompetence. But uh, anyway, but I ha- I also dropped one class because I I went first in this one particular fiction writing workshop, um, 
And uh, I felt like every note was very disrespectful. You know, I went first and so nobody knew me yet. And I felt like they just tore the piece apart and didn't like, when, you, when I give notes, I would always be very clear, like, this is what is really working. This is what's working with the piece. This is what could need improvement. You and, yeah. and, and I felt like it was 95% negative. And I just felt like the teacher wasn't like, I was like, hello, like, can I have, you know what I mean? And it was mostly no, like was political really stuff. Good about that. Yeah, and it was mostly like political stuff. It was like, oh well, this person clearly like uh, patriarchy. Well, well, all these words. It's like, well, I'm a white straight person, so this just like this is my experience. I have trauma too, so I'm trying to work that out. And I just felt like it that the other students didn't meet me halfway. I don't know. Well, I'm sorry to hear you had that experience. That definitely seems atypical of the CWW, but um, yeah, I mean that's a huge bummer. Uh, that was just the one, but also, you know, I don't know. Um, so what was your undergrad in? Uh, funny enough. So I did my first two years at a community college back home in Illinois um, because they gave me a full tuition scholarship uh, and I was still figuring things out. So I just saved a ton of money doing that, just general studies. And then I actually transferred to UNO to finish my bachelor's in English and really fell in love with the city as well as, like I said, I mean, the faculty and the curriculum and I decided that I wanted to pursue an MFA and I just didn't really want to go somewhere else. I, I felt like there was so much more I had to learn from from people like John Gary and Carolyn Hembry. Um, and so I applied there and just stayed, which I think, you know, it was a totally different experience, the MFA compared to the bachelor's. So I know there's kind of a weird stigma about going to the same uh, master's program as where you did your bachelor's, but I had a great experience. I liked it. I really love uh, New Orleans. I, I love going there, you know, to play shows and stuff. So I did like uh, have some allies over there that's, that have remained um, and the food is so good, but I gotta be careful because like Brothers Fried Chicken can straight up like give me a, a heart attack. So, oh, yeah. and then I, ha I didn't even know I had a problem with Brothers Fried Chicken until like I was eating their meat pies, like as on my commute home from uh, doing a show in Siberia. And then like, I had like diarrhea, you know what I mean? I just went down a bad, mm -hmm. anyway. I, I do love Brother Fried Chicken. I don't want to besmirch their character, but if, if one in four meat pies will give you diarrhea. <laughs> um, so I'm trying to sell uh, a book. Um, that's kind of why I also wanted to talk to you because yeah, boy, it's, it's a rough process. So I wrote a book and um, it's called, uh, Love Comedy and Demons. And it's kind of about how, uh, it's like my life story and um, about going, uh, having different breakups and always like just focus on, refocusing on comedy has been like the through line from my uh, life. And I feel like uh, uh, Randy Bates, like some of the stuff I wrote in Randy Bates nonfiction workshop uh, started to, I was like, oh, if I put this chapter and this chapter and this chapter, this is like a nonfiction autobiography that I've already written. And then uh, Mr. Goodman's class as well. Um, oh, the other worst memory is uh, Mr. Goodman uh, did re retract one of my papers, which I uh, will make it into the, called the, uh, the piece was called um, uh, the hippie Texas yoga mills. Anyway. Um, so I put all this together into a book and I sent it out to like, I made a proposal and then I sent it out to agents and I sent it out to 124 agents. Right. And, you know, a lot of the book publishing agents, they have this like thing called like, it's like a query, query manager, query manager. 
So like you upload your PDF and then you like answer all these questions, the synopsis, log line, this and that. So I did it 124 times uh, to different, like I found literally every single one I could and just like two a week say no. So it's just like, no, no, no. And um, it's, uh, so I'm just kind of getting like, my friend, Chris Knowles, he has published two books and um, he said, get away from those people. They're going to scam you. You know, they might give you an advance, but if you sell a million that they're, they're going to like hide that money from you and say, oh, that was all for marketing. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, that was all for that. So uh, yeah. So I'm wondering like, should I just self-publish the PDF on my website with the paper download or, you know what I mean? So I'm just trying to figure all this out. Well, I feel like it, I mean, I, have not published a book. So I'm maybe not the best person to give advice, but I also feel like it depends on your goals. You know, uh, are you trying to make money? Are you just trying to start building like a readership? Are you planning on writing additional books or is this really the one, you know, I feel like that is going to play a part in what you ultimately want to do. So, yeah. So I just got from Houston. Like I say, the, there's a club there called the secret group that loves me. I did like four shows. I did Friday, eight, 10 and then I did 10 midnight uh Saturday and so and then a southern university is like right next to uh the secret group so I was thinking like maybe I could if if I publish then I could teach screenwriting at southern university of Texas and then perform at the secret group what, what could be better than that um so that's kind of what's in my head like publish or perish in the academia so um, that's kind of my goal. But I wonder, like some people attach themselves to a university like UNL Press and then UNL Press uh, puts out their books. So that's another way to go. But um, well, I also wonder if you're doing it, you know, with a teaching career in mind, then I would definitely think about how academia views self-publishing, which I don't know that I necessarily have the answer, but my immediate thought is, you know, if publishing is sort of a way to show your accomplishments, then they may look down on self-publishing. I know, right? If it doesn't say Penguin Press on it, they're like, oh, this isn't cashmere. I only wear cashmere Armani. Endorsement. You know, it's you saying you endorse yourself rather than whatever, whatever press it may be saying, hey, I've endorsed this. I know. I put out my own stand-up specials. I'm not waiting for Mr. Amazon, Dr. Bezos to say I'm funny. I've been banging out since I, you know. Well, also, there you go. And, you know, you can always rework things. Like, if you're impatient to get something out now and you feel like you want to have that on the road with you and be able to promote it, you know, at shows and things like that, maybe you self-publish now and either your second book you try to get published somewhere else or if you substantially rewrite a lot of the pieces in there, maybe add something in, take something out, um, stop allowing the self-published version to be out there. You could potentially put it out as a, you know, revised book through a different press. Yeah. Like a second revision or something. Yeah. I'm wondering about that. I'm just, the, the other thing that's happening is, um, I feel like the mainstream institutions of show business of academia are like dying around me. Just like I say the UNO gym, like I went to swim in a lane and like, they're all empty. And I just, I feel the same way of like the, the, whoever's got their eye on the goal of like, they used to have only three channels on the television, for example. So if someone went on Johnny Carson to public, to promote a book, like that was, it was like a centralized system of academia. Um, but now um, with the internet, like 
even in, in my thing, like Andrew Schultz, he sold his special to Netflix. And at first they approved it and they gave him money and then they watched it. And then they had all these notes because Dave Chappelle uh, upset the trans community. So they say, take out this joke and this joke and this joke. And then he said, no. So he took all of his own money and he bought it back. So like, I don't know these numbers. I'm going to make up numbers, but let's say Netflix spent a hundred thousand dollars on Andrew Schultz's comedy special. Mm-hmm. He had to give them a hundred thousand dollars to buy it back or maybe 120, you know, these desk people, they probably fudged it, whatever. So he had to buy it back from them to own it full, right? Then he puts it on his own website to paper download. And he got like $2 million the first week it was up there because everyone's like, yeah, fuck Netflix for telling you to censor your jokes. Like, you know what I mean? So I also see this wave of against the mainstream establishment in their ivory towers. They get a little, um, they try to direct culture and like the artists should be the ones to do that. You know? Yeah, I mean, that's very true. And again, if you have like a readership that, holds those same values, then self-publishing may play especially well with them. Yeah. But he did like have a decent following first. And then he had the benefit of being on every single, like high, like the top five comedy podcasts. He did every single one uh, to, to bitch about Netflix. And then it was like a great promotion tool, but he's also not lying. And uh, they all respected him. Uh, I mean, let's face it, he had $100,000 to buy a special back. So that just kind of shows you where he's at. So he's not like, uh, you know, he doesn't have my financial situation, for example. So, um, yeah, so I'm like, you know, do I do a shortcut or do I do I need to like kiss the ring of mainstream success once and then use that against them, then stab them in the back for it? You know what I mean? But if I don't even like you're saying, if you don't get mainstream acknowledgement first then you have no collateral in the back end that's kind of what i'm playing with in my mind where it's like like if i self-publish a book they're like oh well you just you know that's like taking a selfie it's like you don't even have one friend to take a picture of you you know (laughs) maybe leveraging like like i think that if you put that out there and you wanted to plan on doing something else published through a publishing house you would need to leverage that to show like okay if a different, you know, I self-published it. How can I show that this has resonated with people, you know, build an online presence and following or get some really good reviews of it or something that you can show off that'll lend that social proof and credibility. I don't know. I know it's, uh, yeah. it's smoke and mirrors. It's like they're used to, it used to just be, you know, you would get the degree and then that, and then you get the degree, then do all your own publishing, then do all your own promoting. It's like, I would just love to just, uh, you know, I don't know, have the degree put out my own. I was also like very disillusioned after I put out my own special on YouTube, got a couple thousand views and it has helped me. Like, for example, the secret group, they, uh, one of the managers there, he was talking about my special and we were talking about the bits and how much he liked it. And that club definitely uh, got me in because of my specials out there. But but um yeah so it's like the chicken or the egg the cart before the horse it's like i have this book i think it's great i spent a lot of time on it um but again yeah so i'm just like do i put it out myself and risk the it it being a bad look but at the same time like i feel like 
the ivory towers of mainstream Hollywood have like collapsed. So, and they're only putting out like, there, there's not even like good um, indie movie scenes anymore. Like Sundance has been, and Cannes Film Festival has been closed for years. So now the only movies that are coming out are like big Marvel bullshitty movies, you know, that I, I don't know. Um, all right. <laughs> uh, yeah, so do, um, I also am paranoid that as the economy goes down, that yeah. hyper-practical books are the only ones that are gonna make it. Like if our crumbling infrastructure is going, then maybe like books about building bridges are more uh, in demand than like my brooding teenage years, you know? Like, oh, this liberal arts, oh, he, I have to buy a book about his feelings? Ew, you know what I mean? So I'm like, you know, in times in times that are challenging, you know, certain audiences will always turn to literature as a way to, you know, cope or escape or whatever the case may be. And I think that's the audience to appeal to. Or again, when I think about maybe publishing a book one day, I think who is going to be realistically my biggest readership. And I mean, it's people that I know in real life. It's going to be friends. It's going to be family. It's going to be people in my, you know, professional and creative network. People who you meet, you know, through the school you went to or shows that you do who can actually hear your work and be like, oh, okay, I like that. That resonates with me. I want to buy that. So I think that's, you know, in my opinion, the best place to start and to really push. And again, then self-publishing maybe makes sense. I mean, what you're saying is exactly what Chris Knoll said. He goes, get you like publish your own first hundred and sell them at shows because people already like you and just bring them around, love them around and sign them and sell them. And he's like, that's how you should start. Uh, and so you I'm like, great yeah. user generated content, like have people take pictures with you with the book, you know, give them a thumbs up or something, put that all over your social media. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's a different time. Like the, the ivory tower of Hollywood doesn't even respect you until you uh, show them that they're irrelevant. Then they want you. You know what I mean? Like when you have like a grassroots following and you get to a higher level, then uh, Hollywood wants to like culturally appropriate all your work and then give you peanuts on the back end. You know, I don't know. Ivory towers, people, desk people. You know what I mean? I've done stand-up since I'm 16. I'm 36 now. And it's like, you know, don't tell me what's funny. Like, are you doing like shitty dive bar clubs in New Orleans for three years, like five nights a week? Right. You know what I mean? Exactly. While getting your exactly. MFA? No. Don't talk to me. Feedback in real time, in real life, as opposed to looking at, you know, numbers and machine learning, which is valuable in its own way, but it is different. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, trust me, I got mental problems and I wrote them all down. So it's not like I made a hero story of myself. I, uh, I'm a degenerate, but anyway, what, like, th that's also what I want to ask you. What did you, what was your goal going into the MFA program? Like, do you want to write books of poetry? Like, what was your thinking going into it? I mean, I would love to write a book someday, but I know that I am a very slow writer. I've been told I'm too precious with my writing, which is probably true. Uh, but what I really wanted was, like I said, you know, I had only actually seriously started, you know, quote unquote, seriously started writing in the past um, two to four years before I entered the MFA, because I just growing up, I loved writing, but I didn't really know where to start. You know, we didn't grow up where you could just 
watch a billion YouTube videos about any subject out there and actually learn something. So without any classes about creative writing, I just had no idea, even the basic building blocks of like how to write a poem, how it works, even after taking literature courses, you know, it's such a different lens to be looking at how it makes meaning and how the different elements of poetry function as opposed to thinking like okay but these are the things that you really need when you're writing to make that a poem so for me entering the mfa my main goal was just i want to become a better poet i want to become a better writer and i i just kind of wanted a master's degree to be honest yeah they can't take that away from you um did you um did you like head fake like right after undergrad Mm-hmm. did you look at your job options and you're like, you know what? I kind of like this college thing. Like, let me just stay in here for another three years. That sounds better than getting my ass kicked in the real world. Or was it like a delayed uh, adolescence? <laughs> like, like I, I like school. Like I love college. Like I really I do. Cool. Yeah. That's part of it. And also I totally forgot. But um, when I first entered the MFA, I did think that I wanted to be a professor. So you need at least a master's for that. So I thought, I, you know, this was just, the necessary next step. And then I TA'd. And while I loved some of it, it was a little bit, (laughs) parts of it were hard for me personally. Um, And also just looking at the landscape of teaching where it's like, it's so ultra competitive and you do not get paid well. And again, I know myself, I'm a slower, more deliberate reader, writer, worker. And so I was going to be working just not a good work-life balance if I became a professor. So I decided not to do that. But that was originally part of my thinking where just going into the MFA was almost autopilot. Like I didn't really have to consider it a lot. Hmm. Like, I know I would have issues teaching like uh, English 101 or something, especially now like the teachers, I'm very serious about this. With, With high school kids like losing like junior, senior year from COVID bullshit, and like zooming into class, like phoning it in, like this interview, um, uh, you don't get that in-person learning. And like uh, where you're, where you're, there might be students in the class that don't like you, that do like you, but they read your work and they go, oh, this piece was good. And then you're like, wow, like you learn social lessons, you learn like important lessons. And then to go into, like they, then to go into college without like grammar, basic, it's like the, the, undergrad college professors instead of like being able to take their minds and ascend like you have to start at like square one you know Mm -hmm. and I could teach screenwriting I could teach nonfiction workshop or fiction workshop I think I could do that tomorrow but a comp like English comprehension class is just not something I'm really interested in you know is that what you were doing Yeah, I did English comp. And again, there were a lot of things I loved about it. Like the students who are interested in learning or who you could kind of find something to break through, that was really rewarding for me and satisfying. And I enjoyed doing that and trying to think of, you know, interesting lesson plans. Um, But it just, A, took too much time. And B, as much as I I feel the MFA has made me really, uh, you know, thicker skinned in terms of receiving you know, constructive criticism from people on my writing um, or my work. Just the idea, you know, I want everyone to like me. And so the idea that some students are not going to like you, no matter how good of a job you do, just thinking like someday, 10 years down the line, someone could be like, oh yeah, and I remember my freshman comp teacher 
what a bitch she gave me a D and it's like well you even if you deserved a D it made me a little sad so I was like maybe teaching especially that kind of class not right for me whereas creative writing I feel like you know that would be a better situation because most of the people who are there they want to be there it's not required and it's just a very different vibe so you didn't like being like the disciplinarian or like giving someone bad news like well you didn't study hard so you got to see Sorry, right. that's life. You know, you didn't yeah, like being the very bad guy. Me. I don't know why I didn't think about that before I planned on making that my career. But yeah, that was tough for me. I'm a people pleaser. Um, I got to refresh the feed uh, real quick. So let's just take a break for two minutes. Um, so I also want to talk about this. Uh, in screenwriting class specifically, when I first came in, the other screenwriting students weren't super thrilled with me. Um, I don't know, my abrasive personality, you know, I'm also like kind of a little bit of a dick because, you know, someone would be like, oh, I wrote a comedy, you know, and I'd be like, you know, I'm kind of arrogant. I was like doing comedy every night. I was like, did you? Like, you know, I'm kind of an asshole. But uh, I got to say, talk about allies in class, like me and Liz Brina were like, I don't know. We just got each other immediately. So that was like always my ally, Liz Brina. I tried to get her on this podcast with us and she's just not interested in podcast. I asked her in undergrad or in uh, grad school too. And she was like, no, thank you. That's not my thing. I don't want to do that. <laughs> but um, I love Liz Brina and she is a, such a talented writer. Oh my God. Yes. I'm reading her book right now and it's amazing. Oh, she has this movie that she wrote about um, a bachelorette party where um, one of their friends is getting married and then all the drama, and then they go on this like kind of like whirlwind adventure bachelorette party and uh, just all the drama and love triangles. It was beautiful. It was so funny and so good. So she, she works at UNO too, I think. Uh, uh, I think she like teaches there now, but uh, I always recommended her. I, so someone asked me one time who would be a good teacher. And I always said, Liz Greenwood. but um, anyway, but I had allies in class. And then, like I said, I took another class where I felt like just like politically people didn't like me. And then just because and then their notes were like, uh, not about my writing, they were more about my politics and my personality. I was like, I don't know. Uh, but then I went in other classes um, that, that there was like none of that. So like when you had to manage personalities teaching and like maybe some of the t- students didn't like you, some of them thought you were a bad person or, some of the students didn't like the other students. Did you have to be like a little bit of a babysitter or traffic cop or like, how was that? Um, I mean, honestly, no, I think I got pretty lucky. I say that I worry about that because I think maybe I had to fail a couple of people and like they weren't thrilled about it, but no one, I never got into any huge confrontations. Um, and even though that sort of thing can happen in some comp classes, like some people do really bring in politics and real world opinions and things. Mine didn't. Um, I think the students generally either got along or they just didn't get in each other's way. And maybe, again, maybe that has something to do with me being such a non-confrontational person that I didn't design like discussions that were going to get people's, you know, blood boiling or anything like that. It was more, uh, I guess, maybe geared less towards that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I was, tr- I did improv at the Upright Citizens Brigade in, in New York City. And the one of the, like I had Chris Gethard as a teacher, like I had 
teachers that were like big comics now. Uh, one of them was Jason Manzukis. And I remember the oh, I first, you know him? So the first Herald team. So I auditioned the first time to do be on a Herald team, like a, a house team. And I remember the, in, the audition was very intimidating. And I remember Jason Manzunka's eyes were like piercing me. And I was just like kind of intimidated. I didn't have a good audition. But then the team that was made, let's call them uh, Granny Fist or whatever. So Granny Fist performs and their first show and they bombed so hard. Like, and it was packed and it was silent because they all kind of, uh, non-committally limped into their improv scenes and and then they were like too scared to make a decision and then it was just like just soup like premise soup that like didn't go anywhere mm-hmm. and but there all these people were like a lot, some of them were like NYU students and some of them were you know so all their families were there and uh so Jason Manzoukas takes them in the back lobby like with an earshot of all of their family members and he was like that was fucking terrible. And like, he would laid into them and was like, look, um, you know, you guys weren't listening to each other. Was the first scene a baseball scene? And they were like, yeah. And he's like, were you the empire or the player? You never even said who, what, where, why, when he goes, who, what, where, why, when none of you had the confidence to, to make a decision about anything. God, if you have another performance like this, you're done. I lobbied for you in the back. And this is how you betrayed me with that bullshit performance. And I was like watching this and I was like, holy shit like I was like my jaw dropped but it didn't surprise me too much because I was like in the classes and that's how they talk to you in the classes you know mm-hmm. and um so I think my directness about how things like were terrible or like like the, just the formatting and stuff like that uh I made like some enemies that way or like you know what I mean but for me I as long as I stayed on the work and some people would go for the personality you know what I mean yeah I always like try to focus on the work um but uh yeah anyway I also remember like you were you we always got along because I feel like you always gave like a fair balance of notes to everybody like you know like like I'm saying I will say not to toot my own horn I'm a great reader I give you more notes than you could ever ask for yeah no and I and like I'm like oh this person's actually here working like mm-hmm. some people were here, like kind of like, oh, this is kind of a party city. Mm-hmm. And like, I like working. I like screenwriting. Like I was there to like learn and be very serious. I also got, this a little embarrassing too, but after uh, grad school, I moved right to LA and I was in a screenwriting group called uh, uh, Deadline Junkies. They literally kicked me out because they said I was too mean. And I, I and my, my whole point was, well, there was one uh, particular uh screenplay that was 30 pages of ponies nudging open gifts for each other and i was like okay are you really going to send that out and i wrote in a group email i was i'm kind of a dick but i wrote it would be a holocaust of waste of paper if you sent this to agents like it's not a plot i'm not that's not my opinion there's not a plot it's ponies giving each other gifts one Mm -hmm. pony eventually said if you don't tell them where you're from then I'll reveal who you are. None of those questions were answered. <laughs> That's 30 so pages. Funny. And I'm like, if you don't make this a bad experience, first of all, if they approach an agent, like a William Morris Endeavor agent, and they're like, well, I work really hard. I go to a weekly screenwriting group called Deadline Junkies. Here's my pile of dog shit. And then the person reads it. It's like, they, they might think everyone there sucks. 
So yeah, you know what I mean? Not create a good impression for anyone associated with that. Yeah. So I have Jason Manzukis in my head and I have like the reality of like, you know, if you watch the movie Entour- or the show Entourage, Ari Gold, you know, like uh, art dealers and agents and managers, like they, they're all on cocaine. They like cocaine and boats or whatever. I don't know. Power. I don't know what agents like. They're the scum of the earth. But you have to impress these people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they don't. Well, like you said, the stakes are high. Like you only get sometimes you only get one shot in front of a certain person or certainly your work. I mean, you're going to put it in front of them one time and you have to grab them immediately and there can't be things turning them off right away. Or it's just, it's going in the trash. They are not going to read through every single thing and give it quote unquote, like a fair shake. That's not how that works in reality. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't want to like college. It's we're also like, you know, taking out student loans, not for nothing, you know, and this whole pandemic scenario is weird because they've been pushing off like, oh, you don't have to start repaying until March. Uh, we mean October. I mean, next year, 2024. So that's also been weird where it's like, but uh, taking out student loans and, and like, like the three years working super, super hard in that school, like it's, it's pointless if, if you don't uh, get kind of a reality check about what it's like on the outside, you know? Right. Again, unless you're doing it for certain other, like if publishing is not a major goal of yours, then that's fine. Like if you're one of those people who just wants to write for themselves. Um, but I, I think you're right. I mean, that is like got to be the smallest subset of people. Most people are there because they want to be, you know, a successful writer in the larger world and have a readership and get published. Uh, my undergrad teacher at, at the new school in New York called uh, Doug Tarola, he said, um, he goes, I, he was in Princeton for undergrad in a poetry class. And the person, they got a lot of harsh notes on their poem. And they said, well, you know, I just want to write for myself. And the professor gave this person, got, grabbed a fresh notebook, put the notebook in front of them and said, this class isn't for you. Go home and write in the notebook. You don't need a class to write for yourself. Go home then if you don't want to hear people's notes. And I was like, and but let me tell you, Doug Tarola is a no bullshit dude. And so uh, I kind of like that, like New York style of like, look, you're either going to sell or not. And it's like life or death. You know what I mean? Yeah, I like uh, that. And I think that that is a very practical view. But at the same time, I do think, you know, it is worth understanding human nature and that, you know, I mean, the whole idea of the compliment sandwich, where you give someone a compliment first, because you know, by human nature, that's going to make them more receptive to the rest of what you have to say. And then you have your constructive criticism, again, being conscious of how it's worded. Even if something is a hot pile of garbage, maybe you don't describe it exactly. You can get the same idea across in a way that's going to be more palatable. And then you end with a final compliment so that again, you know, again, the same way that we're thinking about how publishers are going to read things in reality, where you have to make sure that you have a strong open because they might not get past that, even though that may not be the ideal situation, that's how it is. I think the same goes for giving feedback to other people where, you know, you do want to be direct, you do want to give them actionable, realistic advice, but there's something to be said for being conscious about how it's going to be received, at least to some extent, to make sure that, you know, people can make the most of it and be receptive towards it. Yeah, uh, but I don't know. Um, I was... Like I said, my level three teacher at the Upright Citizens Brigade in New York was Chris Gethard. And I would literally, like, he would give me notes sometimes. I swear to God, I was probably 19 years old. I went home and I cried. I literally went home and cried. And I go, I suck. I want to impress this guy. 
And then I see him uh, do shows at the UCB at the time. And he was fucking hilarious. And so what I love about that part of my life is like the teachers like proved it all the time. And, uh, you know, they like proved it. Um, but then, uh, yeah, so, and then it like pushed me like that, you know, all those years later in 2020, I put out a stand-up special because I was like pushed, like this is, this is hardcore. Like I, I came from a, like a, a time when, you know, I really looked up to Kevin Smith. It's Kevin Smith who made the movie Clerks in 1994. And he was like a clerk at a quickie mart. And he wrote this screenplay and he got like, he applied for like 10 credit cards and maxed out all the credit cards. And he made a movie on film and he flew to Sundance and he left with like a $2 million offer. And then, you know what I mean? Now those kind of Cinderella stories, it's like, if he didn't spend really a lot of time making sure it was as funny as possible, running it by some friends who aren't going to bullshit him, like this scene is a little slow. Let's, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like when you hawk your whole life, it's like Monopoly. Like I'm either going to be bankrupt or I'm going to get a ticket to the Golden Palace. So that was always my mentality with art, you know, mm-hmm. maybe it's extreme. But uh, I like there's a, a, like there's knowledge for knowledge's sake, but then that has to be reconciled with the reality. Yeah, I think so. Especially, like I said, if any of your objectives are practical or based in reality, then it's something you have to take into account. Um, so you told me about uh, a practice that you have. You're you're more of a slow player. Like, look, I got my whole life to write a book. So what is now your poetry practice? Oh, gosh, I'm not always perfect about it, um, especially lately. But I will say one of, you know, this pandemic has been terrible, but a few good things have come of it for me. And one of them is the fact that where I work is now 100% hybrid. So I can work from home whenever I want to, basically. Um, and so instead of spending like an hour every morning between eight and 9am getting dressed and getting out the door and making sure I had enough time, even on, you know, the worst traffic days to get there by nine. Now, uh, generally the idea is I spend eight to 9am working on poetry. And I had a really, really good practice of that. The reason I say generally is because sometimes other things will happen where it's like, okay, you know, right before a big trip or right after, like I'm experiencing right now, fell a little bit behind on my work. So rather than working late every night, I'm using that time in the morning, eight to nine to catch up on work rather than doing poetry. But I want to get back to the poetry because that is a great time for me to spend writing as well as, you know, people that I'm workshopping with reading and giving feedback on their work or working through the feedback they've given me. Eventually when I get to the point of needing to do, you know, sending things out um, for submissions and publication, I can use that time for that as well. But that's what makes up the majority of my practice. And I do try to workshop with people. Again, it's a little bit hard. People's plans can be so in flux now with the pandemic, um, but it also makes people more open to some remote possibilities. So workshopping with people is a big part of my practice as well. Yeah. And, um, uh, I don't want to totally dismerch uh, Deadline Junkies. I did, uh, before they kicked me out, because I was too hardcore for them, they did, uh, what was so great about it was you would give them 30 pages of a screenplay, and then they had like a dais of actors, and they, the actors would read it out. So even if you made mistakes, they would like read the mistakes. It's like, oh God, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, so, um, but then just hearing it out loud from a chorus of actors was like very, very uh, positive for me, for my own work. Um, 
you know, so yeah, there, you need to like kind of get into like, it also gave me structure because once a week I went there. So mm -hmm. like, you know, you can fall out of structure fast because life happens and blah, blah, blah. But um, yeah, anyway, comedy for me, like I don't write every day, but I like prepare for shows. Mm -hmm. So like for me, like dates on a calendar and then I'll, I'll be like, I'll basically shame myself into doing new material. Cause I'm like, look, you're lazy. You do the same freaking joke about your mom's hysterectomy. Every time you get on stage, like do this other joke that you're scared to do. Cause it might bomb. You know what I mean? So I like have to shame myself. I don't know. I'm crazy. But uh, <laughs> like at the secret group, I had this whole joke about the smallest woman in the world and the tallest man in the world. And it's uh, it crushed. And I'm so glad that I pushed myself and I uh, made myself do new material. Cause like, I can get the thing about comedy that's so crazy is like you can get addicted to killing because like I know like let's say you know I have like this five minute chunk that I would always start with for like a long time and I would like get addicted to the laughs from that but then you're like you're not evolving because like I already know this works mm -hmm. so it's like you're more of like a jukebox you know what I mean so you always have to like challenge yourself to like keep fresh and then when the other comics all know your act and then they're like, oh, the first time I saw you, it was great. But the 50th time I saw you, I was like, get some new material. You know what I mean? So and you need like, yeah. I'm sure it sucks to bomb, but I feel like you learn something from it. It's still valuable in its own way. It's like, now you know, and you know what needs work. And you can, the more that that happens, you can see trends and patterns of like, what is going to work well and what might not. So I'm sure that it's valuable no matter what. Like you said, you just have to push yourself to get out of that comfort zone. Yeah, but it's also confidence. It's also like mental health and like, Everyone's crazy. Anyway, I want to say this. Uh, uh, Zach, I think, uh, what, why, why am I blanking on his name? Jack, Jack Knight. Jack Knight, uh, I knew in Los Angeles at the comedy store, and he, like, shot himself. You know what I mean? So it's like people can get uh, a little twisted, you know? Like, he w was having success. I feel like this is my speculating. The pandemic took his career options away, and then he was all in on comedy, and he didn't have a day job. And he like, the wheel, you know what I mean? The wheels came off. So like, I think it's smart with you and me. Like we all, we always had a job the whole time. And so it's like, you know, I understand that. That's why also I'm kind of trying to get an agent for at least an advance to take a little pressure off so that I can like focus a little bit more on comedy and not have to work so much all the time, you know? So you really have to balance everything. Um, but yeah, having a morning practice of poetry writing. Anyway. Uh, expect big things from Lauren Walter. She'll her book of poetry is going to come out in you know twenty fifty five. Don't rush her; she's a slow writer. Uh, her Twitter is at Lauren L Walter and at Instagram. Uh, one of the good ones, one of the hard workers at UNO. I remember from grad school. Uh, always nice to me, so I appreciate that. And uh, oh, um, uh, Highway Diary sponsored by ACBD Remedy. Go to acbdremedy.com. Uh, I use this stuff every night. It's uh, good for pain and inflammation. Um, and uh, go to erichollerbach.com. I got stand-up specials there. And I'll be in New Jersey uh, September, September doing shows at the Comedy Dojo in Morris Plains, New Jersey. Hey, thanks to my guest, Lauren Walter. Thanks, Take Eric. Care.